Well, good morning. We just got back from visiting the cutest little girl in the world, so uh, which was fun. We drove two days to Wisconsin and then two days back, but it was worth it. I'll tell you, it was it was great having a little granddaughter. Uh, let's pray. Father, we uh, have gathered this morning to worship you, and as part of our worship, we want to listen to the truth of your word and open up our hearts and our minds to what it has to say to us, what you have to say to us, so that we can be challenged. And uh, Father, we want to listen well this morning to what you have to say, and I pray that we would uh, be responsive, have responsive hearts. We pray this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. 2008 Beijing Olympics. Uh, the men's 4 by 100 had great hopes for uh, winning a medal. The problem is they didn't finish the race. Uh, they dropped the baton. Uh, the handoff between Tyson Gay and Darius Patton was missed. And as a result, they didn't win a medal. They didn't even finish. That's not the first time that uh, U.S. relay teams have had a problem with uh, passing the baton. Four years earlier in Athens Olympics, the women's team mishandled a baton pass. Marion Davis uh, couldn't get it into the hands of Lauren Williams. And as a result, uh, they took too long and were disqualified from the race. And that group of women were favored to win the gold. And there's been a lot of speculation as why American teams have such a difficult time in, in, in the relay race. It, it's not because we don't have some of the fastest people in the world. We do. Lots of theories, but I think the one that may be the, the closest to the truth is the one that suggests, you know, Americans are individualists. And as such, we focus on the individual event. Every racer that goes there goes to win their event. That's their focus. Be nice if they ran the relay, but uh, it's not what they give attention to. So they don't work hard enough. They don't practice enough. They don't focus enough on all the collaboration it takes to hand off the baton, which is absolutely crucial to winning the relay race. You know, a lot of times we think of the Christian life as a race. We uh, want to run hard after Jesus, and we want to finish well, and we assume that if we finish well and we become more like him in the process and keep focus on the kingdom, uh, we'll win. But I'm wondering if perhaps we shouldn't see the race as such an individual event. I'm wondering if maybe we should begin seeing the Christian life more like a relay where we have to hand off the baton. Because the truth is, in the Christian life, even if you run your leg of the race incredibly fast, if you don't hand off the baton to the next generation and do that well, then in one sense, we've lost. 
no matter how fast we ran. This morning, I want to talk about handing off the baton, how we take our faith and give it away to the next generation. I thought it would be a, a good subject for Mother's Day because I think as parents, we, we, we are concerned about that. But we need to be concerned about it, not just as parents, but as, as a church. At Waterstone, we have a vision that we want to see our kids live out. We want to produce kids that are absolutely passionate about God's kingdom and his work in the world and pursue the kingdom and the king with all their heart. We want to produce kids that have been transformed and are being transformed into people who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. We want kids who are passionate about this thing we call neighboring, which is really this global vision and understanding that God wants to reach the whole world with the claims of Jesus Christ, beginning with their neighbors and their community and their friends. And we want to produce kids who are committed to restoration, this idea of seeing God's kingdom come in the world, this understanding that they are part of a bigger story something much, much bigger than themselves. And thus they uh, need to be passionate about issues of justice and the poor and the hungry and the marginalized, the orphan and the widow and the stranger. But what is it going to take to carry out that kind of vision? I believe that it is the responsibility of the church to prepare the next generation to live out the Christian life. It's one of the reasons why at Waterstone we invest so much in kids' ministry. As Sarah said, we have 225 kids on the typical Sunday in the kids' ministry, probably another 70 or 80 involved in the youth ministry. That's well over 300. There are 10 staff that we have focused just on our kids' ministry. It's why we have taken so much of our facility and turned it into classrooms and nurseries for, for, for kids. It's why we do so much with our, our preschool. We have over 160 kids involved in our preschool, and it has 27 of its own staff. I mean, kids and kids' ministry are an important thing around here at Waterstown because we know that the Christian faith is only one generation from extinction. We have to do a good job of handing off the baton. We're given this incredible opportunity to do so. You know, statistics tell us that most people become believers in Jesus before the age of 18. And most of those make that decision before the age of 13. We tried this last hour. I want to try it again. How many of you sitting here came to Jesus before age 18? Raise your hand. Ah, the statistics are right. How many of you before age 13? See, an incredible, thank you, incredible opportunity if we take advantage of it to make a difference for the kingdom. So how do we do it? Well, some of you are thinking, well, I don't know, but it's not really my problem. I mean, isn't that uh, the responsibility of parents and maybe the kids' ministry and maybe the youth ministry? It's not my responsibility. I don't have kids or at least my kids are grown. It's my job. Not true. You know what? Sometimes we forget we're a spiritual family. And that we have a responsibility that reaches beyond us. And then whether we like it or not, all of us have kids involved in our life 
to some degree. And those kids, whether you're connected to them directly or not, are watching. They're watching how you live out the Christian life. And whether you like it or not, you're being an influence either for good or for bad. So this morning, I want to talk about how we pass the baton. And I'm talking to parents, and I'm talking to youth workers, and I'm talking to kids' ministry people, but I'm also talking to grandparents, grandmothers and grandfathers, and uncles, and and aunts, and and neighbors, and and, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, because all of us make a difference in the lives of kids. Now, one of the things that uh, making, passing on the faith makes it so difficult is what I call the law of spiritual deterioration. The law of spiritual deterioration says this, without renewal, the vibrancy of the spiritual life will constantly decline. That's uh, true for individuals. It's true in all kinds of places. We don't constantly renew the vibrancy, the reality of the Christian commitment in us, our spirituality, it will decline. How many of you have ever seen uh, what's called Newton's Cradle? Anybody? You probably have. That's Newton's Cradle. It's uh, a perpetual motion machine. When I was a little kid, my parents gave me one that was made out of plastic and steel, and I loved it because you'd lift the steel ball and one didn't let it go, and it would hit, and the other ball would just pop up and come back, and You'd start that thing, and you think it would just run forever. But the reality is it doesn't. Over time, it slowly loses momentum and deteriorates. That's what happens on a spiritual level. You see it on all kinds of places. You can see it in institutions. I don't know if you know this, but Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, all of them were started as Bible colleges with the intent, purpose to train people to go into the gospel ministry. If you visit Harvard or Princeton or Yale today, they have no interest in spiritual things. In fact, uh, this is a picture of Harvard, and that's their seal. If you look at it, it says Veritas, which is truth. What that seal used to say, the Veritas was in the bottom book that was open, and then the two others said, for uh, Christ and for church, truth. They took for Christ and for church out. Somewhere along the line, the spiritual commitment of Harvard deteriorated. In fact, it's their deterioration that motivated them to start Yale. And then Yale deteriorated. It it always happens, spiritual deterioration. You also see it in denominations and churches. A denomination starts because they have a unique niche or perspective on the gospel ministry and and there's this flurry of activity and they typically grow like wildfire and make a huge impact. But what happens over time, they lose that passion. They begin to move away from the gospel. You see it in the mainline denominations that are dying today in America. They've lost that spiritual energy and the gospel that made them so effective And they're dying. And you can see it in churches. There are churches in Chicago, famous churches in Chicago and New York and London and Dallas and Los Angeles that in their day, thousands of people would flock to to hear the gospel and the word of of God preached. But if you went to them today and went through their doors, you'd enter places that had hardly anybody there on a Sunday morning, hollow, empty, 
ineffective. Spiritual deterioration. You know, the place that it bothers me the most and where I've thought about it the most is in families from generation to generation. I noticed it when I was doing youth ministry 30 years ago. There would be people who um, I knew were were sold out to Jesus. I, I, I mean, in my eyes, spiritual giants, just great commitment. People who I really cared about and loved... And I'd get exposed to their kids, and not for all of them, but some of their kids were totally apathetic about spiritual things. And I wondered, what what happened? What happens between the generations? You can have totally committed parents, and then you get kids that uh, care less. And I wondered why. Now, for a number of years, that was an academic question. But it soon ceased to be an academic question when Barb and I had Sarah, and then Danielle, and then Chelsea, and then Max, and then Paige. Suddenly, um, it wasn't something in theory. I was really concerned. How am I going to take my faith and pass it on to the next generation? uh, That thought reoccurred to me as we went to Wisconsin and visited Emmeline. Uh, um, just a few days old, and I, I'm there thinking, how, how do we make sure she grows up to be a person of faith, to be a person who's radically committed to Jesus Christ? What's it going to take? How do we do it? You see this uh, pattern in Scripture over and over again. And I think if we go there, you can actually look at the pattern and and see some steps in the progression that happens between generations and happens in the spiritual deterioration. I I heard this first, this this observation from Scripture first from a man named Bruce Wilkerson who worked for Walk Through the Bible. And his illustration has always struck with me. And I've given it a lot of thought. But, but basically it says this, there, there are three key chairs and each of the chairs represents uh, different stages of spiritual commitment. The, the first chair is labeled uh, the chair of commitment. Uh, people who sit in this chair are radically sold out to Jesus. They pursue his kingdom and pursue him as king. He is the priority of their life and everything else in their life is secondary to him. And because he's that priority... He controls and influences all their behavior, all their decisions, all their values. They're totally sold out to the gospel. That's the chair of commitment. The next chair is the chair of compromise. And oftentimes, these are people who grew up in the house of the committed, um, but their faith is a bit secondhand. They still know Jesus. They still have a relationship with him. But he's not at the center of their life. They've kind of moved him off a bit to the side, still, still in their lives. But uh, they're more interested in using him than allowing him to use them. Um, he's secondary. And as a result, they compromise their faith. They're not totally committed. Other things start becoming more important than their relationship to Jesus Christ. And then the third chair, and often these are the kids who grew up in the house of compromise, are are what I've labeled confused. Because they look at their parents and they hear their parents say one thing, 
and then live another. And they begin to use the word hypocrite. And things don't line up the way they should. So they get confused about the reality of what they say they believe. So they don't believe. They don't have a relationship with, with Jesus. One of the places you see this in Scripture is in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 24. I want us to look at this passage real quick. Verses 14 and 15. Joshua is uh, an old man. He's over 100 years old at this point. They've been in the promised land. They've conquered most of it, although there's some still tribes that need to be kicked out, people that need to be kicked out. But Joshua is going to die. So he's giving a challenge to the people of Israel about how they should live. And he says this. He says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt and from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we, we traveled. And then in verse 31, Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and all the elders who outlived him and who experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. So Joshua and the elders, they sit in this seat of commitment. They have experienced the reality of God firsthand. They have walked through the Red Sea. They have eaten manna every morning. They have marched around Jericho and watched the walls fall down. They have seen the sun stand still. They saw the Jordan River stop so that they could walk through. I mean, God is this present reality for them. Not just an idea in their head, but they have kids. And although their kids experience some of what they did, they're younger. It's not as real to them. They soon forget. And pretty soon all those realities that this first generation experienced, this second generation, they're just stories. This group knows God and knows his works. This group knows God but only knows about his works. And then notice what we find out in Judges chapter 2. This is a summary statement about the people living in the land of promised Canaan. People served throughout the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 and they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath Hares in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. After that, the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. In other words, he's saying these two generations, they die. And this third generation doesn't know God and doesn't know his works. 
knows God, knows his works, knows God, knows about the works, knows not God, and knows not the works, the progression. That's interesting. You see this again and again and again in Scripture. For example, Abraham. Abraham is living in Ur of the Chaldees, and God shows up to him and says, hey, I want you to go to the land of Canaan. And Abraham says, I'll do it. I mean, Abraham is committed. God is a reality to him. And when he gets to the promised land, what is the very first thing he does? He builds an altar. He worships God because God's the priority of his life. And then when he's done worshiping, he goes and he builds a well. Abraham sits in the chair of commitment. He has a son named Isaac. Isaac sits in the seat of compromise. He doesn't have the same faith. He doesn't have the same commitment that his father does. He believes God's a reality to him, but not in the same way. It's not this firsthand experience. When Isaac goes into the land, the very first thing he does is he builds a well. He takes care of his own needs first. And then oftentimes when he gets around to it, he'll build an altar. Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob does not know God and does not know God's ways. And and Jacob is the world's classic con artist. In fact, his name means sneaky. He is all about himself. It's all he cares about. To care less about God. Now, he's going to switch seats, but that's later on in the story. But right now, he sits in the seat of the confused. See the same thing with David. David is a man after God's own heart. In fact, David becomes the standard by which all other kings are measured. Because David is totally committed to God. Now, David is not perfect. People who sit in the seat of commitment aren't perfect. They blow it. They're human. But when they blow it, they respond to God's forgiveness. They repent. They're honest about the relationship with God. It's not a facade. There's nothing pretend. David has a heart fully committed to God. David has a son, though, by the name of Solomon. And Solomon sits in the seat of compromise. Now, God tells us that there were three things the kings of Israel were not to do. They weren't to marry a lot of wives They weren't to collect a lot of horses because horses represented military might and power. And they weren't to collect a lot of gold. And Solomon does all three. Women, power, and money. It's not that Solomon doesn't know God. He knows the reality of God. But he just chooses to live focused on the world. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, seeing the hypocrisy of his father Solomon, rejects his father's faith completely, rejects his father's God. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 12, we're told that Rehoboam does away with the law of God. No moral absolutes. All truth is relative. In fact, in the book of Judges, it talks about the people who sit here as being people who do what is right in their own eyes. Goes from commitment to compromise to confusion. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at these 
chairs and their characteristics. One is to look at them in terms of spiritual experience. The people who sit here have a real and vibrant experience of God. I, I mean, Joshua and the elders, man, they experienced the miraculous. It was a firsthand reality for them. God was very, very real in their lives. And oftentimes, people who sit in this seat are, are, are people who, who are converted, you know, and are converted out of desperate straits in their lives. They come to Jesus, and suddenly, you know, the addictions are changed, the language has changed, the lifestyle has changed. I mean, it's this, this radical thing. And those people, because of their conversion, they understand the transformation of what happens when God comes into your life. And it, it's a present reality to them. They know that God is real because God has touched their hearts. It's a real thing. First-hand experience of God. People who sit here in the seat of compromise are often the kids of the committed. And as such, they grow up in the church. Right? And people in the church typically make a decision for Jesus 13, at least before they're 18. Well, how much trouble can you get in? How much can you mess up your life by the age 13? Not a whole lot. So they don't experience the same radical transformation. I mean, for this group, suddenly their life is filled with meaning and purpose and hope and peace. and <laughs> It's transforming. These, they grew up with that. They grew up knowing all that stuff. Their experience is secondhand. Detached. Not quite as real. And then the confused. Well, they hear the stories. I mean, these people have watched God work in their parents' life, haven't experienced as much in their own, but they tell the stories of what happened there to these. And to them, they're just stories. They're just fables. They're just kind of legends. And they're big question marks. Because they see the gap, right? The gap between what these people say and how they live. They may talk about God being real, but they don't live like he's real the word hypocrite comes up. These people become cynical, become contemptuous of the church because they're confused because they don't have any spiritual experience. Or you can look at these people in terms of convictions and beliefs. The people who sit here have convictions. In other words, they've wrestled through and they've made this reality of their faith their own. They've internalized it. They've had these questions. They've wrestled through them. They've read the scriptures. They've tried to figure out what they believe. They've come to conclusions and those conclusions they own in their convictions. And if you ask them, uh, what do you believe? They can tell you. And if you ask them why they believe that, they can tell you. And if you ask them why they behave and live the way they live, they can tell you because they thought it through and owned it. The people in the seat of Carmel, they, they just grew up in it. They were just told that all that doctrine and all those truths. And all, it's just, it's what I've always been taught. They haven't wrestled with it. And they haven't questioned it. They haven't challenged it. And as a result, they oftentimes have not made it their own. You see, when you have a conviction, you'll die for it. And if you'll die for it, you'll live for it. But if it's simply a belief, you won't die for it. And thus, you don't live for it. So the gap between what they believe and how they live just grows and grows and grows. 
and the confused. They live in a world where there is no truth. There are no moral absolutes. All truth is relative. So for them, life is just this huge question mark. Or you could talk about values. The, the people who sit in this chair of commitment, they, they value people because they understand that people are ever-living, never-dying souls that will live into the eternity. So, so they, they focus on, on loving people. And the people in this chair have this relationship with the scriptures because to them the scripture is truth. It's life. It's, they, they read it and they study it and they incorporate it into to how they live. And, and they're committed to ministry and the advancement of the kingdom because they don't want to be spectators. They know God is real. They know their calling is to make a difference for the kingdom. You see it in how they use their resources because they know this life is not the end, the life to come, the kingdom to come. That's what they're living for. So they take their resources and rather than spending them on themselves, they put them into the efforts of the kingdom. And these people, when it comes to their values, are radical in their commitment. Because Jesus is their king. No, no, I mean really their king. See to compromise. It's different. Jesus is there in the picture, but he doesn't have the impact on the values. So what these people value oftentimes is things and looking good. They, they care more about what people think than what God thinks. Because they have one step fully entrenched in the world and just toes dipped into their faith. So things like uh, success and achievement and a great job, and a new car, and a really nice house, and a really nice second house, and investment accounts. All those things become their priorities, become their life, becomes what they're focused on. Is Jesus still there? Oh yeah, he's still there. But these people become more and more nominal. Believers in name only. Not Isaiah talks about these people who worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And the people who sit here see the hypocrisy and see the the gap between what they say and the values, and they reject it. But they're lost and they're confused. And they know that they want to live lives that have meaning, but they're not sure how to do that. I think this is why the millennial generation is so causal in its orientation is because they know there has to be something bigger than themselves that they can attach themselves to give meaning, but they don't know what that is. So they get sucked into simply living for themselves, a lot like Jacob. So the question I want you to wrestle with this morning to begin with is what chair do you sit in? Committed? Compromise? Or confused? Where do you sit? I want you to be honest with yourself this morning. Now, when it comes to this truth, I think there's a couple ways um, we can apply it to this notion of handing off the baton, of impacting the next generation. 
I, I think the first thing, uh, two lessons come of this. The first lesson is simply this. Everybody has to choose. Where you sit is your choice. God has children, but he has no grandchildren. You are not born sitting in either the seat of commitment or the seat of compromise. At best, we're all born in the seat of being the confused. And we have to choose where we're going to be. You have to choose. And the choice is yours. You cannot blame your parents or your church or your friends or your circumstances for where you sit. You sit where you sit because that's where you've chosen to sit. And if you choose not to decide, not deciding is a choice. Now what's interesting is you're not stuck in a chair. You, you, you can change chairs. In fact, that's why Joshua is challenging the people, right? He's saying, hey, today you got to choose. You're responsible for your spiritual condition. you got to choose. Where are you going to be? Are you going to choose God and serve him? And you look at the life of Jacob. Jacob starts out here confused. I mean, he's messed up. But man, at some point, God gets a hold of that guy and he wrests. It's this great metaphor. He's wrestling with God and God touches his hip and breaks him. And in a sense, what happens is Jacob is moving from the seat of the confused, having this experience and moving into the seat of the committed. And Jacob's life is never the same again. Everybody has a choice. So even though everybody chooses, the second lesson is this. We do influence the choices people make. You know, I've been asked lots of times, both in youth ministry and as a pastor, hey, what's the key to giving your faith away to your kids? And I've thought about that, and I've thought about it not simply as a parent, but as a pastor in a church, what's the key to, to passing on our faith in, in terms of ministry? And it's interesting, I spent a lot of time looking at families and tried to see if there was some common practices or common methodologies that seemed to be consistent between those families that uh, were producing kids who had faith. Was there, there a common denominator? It was interesting what I did not find. I didn't find any practice or methodology that seemed consistent. I mean, some families had personal devotions or family devotions. Some of them, you know, would sit down around the dinner table and make sure they talk about spiritual things. And then other families weren't so structured about that, didn't have family devotions at all. We never had family devotions. My wife got it crammed down her throat when she was young. That's the last thing she was wanted to do so I mean we talked about our faith in all kinds of contexts and all kinds of places but it wasn't structured like that that just didn't work for us so we didn't do family devotions I noticed that some families were really strict you know controlled everything and others were 
surprisingly permissive. But that didn't seem to have a consistent outcome either. And I know that some were really outspoken and really verbal and in their kids' face and others were pretty quiet about it in terms of how they led. There just seemed no consistent pattern. There was one thing, though, that I began to pick up. And it wasn't a guarantee, but there was a correlation. It it, it seemed that uh, when families had kids that truly embraced their faith, more often than not, the parent had an authentic faith. They, they were sitting in, in, in chair number one, chair of the committee. And they were honest about their faith and honest about their struggles. And they didn't play the game. And it wasn't just words and it wasn't just a facade. They really wrestled with God and really pursued him with their heart. And despite all the methodologies and practices, kids seem to pick that up. And I think that's the key. I think kids and youth are looking for authenticity. They want the real thing. They're they're not asking their parents or the adults around them to be perfect, because none of us are. But they are asking them to be honest and sincere and genuine. And committed. And it seems that that's what makes the difference. Not a guarantee. I mean, you can sit in the seat of the committed and be authentic in your faith. And remember, people make their own choices. And your kids can still end up in the seat of the confused. And by the way, that it's not a gauge either. Just because you have a kid that's sitting in the seat of confused doesn't render judgment on which seat you're in. Remember, people make their own choices. So it's not a guarantee or a gauge, but there seems to be a correlation. So I have uh, two challenges that I want to end with this morning. The first is, for us as a church, we need to be a community of people that have an authentic, vibrant, and committed faith. We, we can't play at this game. It cannot be a facade for us. My desire for Waterstone is that we be a community of radically committed Jesus followers, people who are hard after the kingdom and the king. And that it's not something we simply talk about, but it's a reality in our lives. Because I think if we're going to hand off our faith to the next generation, we have to sit here. Because here is the truth. Kids and youth are watching. Whether they're your kids or somebody else's kids, they're watching. They're watching how you live out their faith, your faith. They're watching whether you love people or don't love people. They're watching how you treat those who, who aren't in your immediate sphere, who some people would consider the marginalized. They're, they're watching to see if you care about the poor. They're watching to see what you do with your money. They're watching your words and your attitudes and your lifestyle. They're, they're watching. And what they're looking for is an authentic, real, vibrant faith that is at work in you. Not perfection, 
but honest transformation. You see, where we sit has a ripple effect, first to our kids, but then to all the others around us. It makes a difference. So we need to be a community of radical commitment. And second, we need to engage with kids and youth. I mean, here's the truth. We, we have this an amazing opportunity to make an impact for the kingdom. Just right where we are. Just with the kids that God has brought into our lives. And we can do it formally. You know, get involved in youth ministry or get involved in the kids ministry. They need volunteers. What a great way to invest your life to make a difference for the kingdom. It's awesome and it's worth every ounce of energy you put into it. Or informally, just with the, the people God brings the children God brings, the, the young adults God brings into your life. Just invest in them. Engage with them. ran across this quote that was really interesting. It was Mark DeVries, family-based youth ministry. He writes this. He says, almost without exception, those young people who are growing in their faith as adults were teenagers who fit into two categories. Either one, they came from families where Christian growth was modeled in at least one of their parents, which he's saying, at least one of the parents sat in this seat. Or they had developed significant connections with an extended family adults within the church. So either their parents sat in this seat or, or some other adults sat in the seat that they connected with so that they could see that faith lived out and figure out what that looked like. You know, I thought a lot about my own kids and their own spiritual development, and four of my kids have faith, and one of them is confused. There are lots of reasons that go into that. But it's interesting to me, one of the things that has made an impact on my kids is the investment of other adults in Waterstone in my kids. And they made a huge impact. Andy invested in my son, Max, Danielle invested in my daughter, Sarah. When, <laughs> when we headed back to uh, Wisconsin, Ladine Dickerson, who has been involved in children's ministry here for as long as I've been here, so over 25 years, and poured her life into all my kids, Ladine gave me a blanket, a handmade blanket to take back to Wisconsin for my daughter and her my daughter's child. And uh, I think Ladine was more excited about this kid than I was. She's just vested in my kids and she's made an impact. And my, all, every one of my kids will tell you how great Ladine is and the difference she's made in their lives. So will we be a church of people radically committed to the king and the kingdom? And will we engage with the children that God brings into our lives, formally or informally? We need to do both if we're going to hand the baton off well. And it's up to us. Would you pray with me? Father, I, I pray that you just get a hold of our hearts this morning, Lord, I don't know where people are sitting 
in relationship to you, but I pray that they'd take advantage this morning of the opportunity to choose and to choose to be totally sold out and committed to you. And I pray that that is the kind of church we would be, a, a community filled with people focused on you and your kingdom, focused on, on, on living radical lives in obedience to you. And Father, help put in us a passion to love on kids, to engage with them, to be authentic with them and honest. Don't let us play the game. Let us be real, but let us be real with genuine faith. Father, I pray for the kids and the youth of Waterstone that their experience here in this church can be a great one, a positive one, one that pushes them towards you, not pushes them away. Help us be that kind of church and those kind of people. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake, amen.